0: We need to look at that $6 gallon of gas in Mammoth Mountain, California. And yeah, it's cheaper other places, but it is front and center for President Biden. Joining us, a gentleman hugely qualified on this strange word, energy security. Amos Hochstein is Senior Advisor of Energy Security at the Department of State and joins us today. It, the, the thing here, Amos, every time around is whip inflation now, and every president has a different path, like Jerry Ford, to whip inflation now. And your reading of history is the same as mine. This is a tough task. What is the first order of business for Joe Biden?
1: Well, I think uh, first of all, good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. Uh, as you said before, energy is energy security is is a critical issue. And I think the president took strong steps yesterday uh, to address the fallout uh, in the energy markets as a result, a direct result of the Ukraine war and and the invasion, the unjust invasion and brutal war that uh, that Putin is waging in Ukraine. And that has consequences as the president said yesterday uh, here at home with uh, rising costs of energy, rising costs of oil, which of course translates as you said, into rising costs of gasoline Uh, for Americans. So President Biden took a strong step yesterday announcing the largest uh, SPR release, the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, a million barrels a day for the next six months. Uh, And that uh, we've already seen prices come down as a result of that announcement. Uh, That's going to have a a major impact uh, in the oil markets and the energy markets writ large.
0: Yeah, Uh, okay. But Amos, what's important here, and this is pizza security. John, this filters down into every product, including a slice of pizza at Famiglia in New York. It is up, up, up.
2: You're very delicate about the slice of pizza in New York, Tom. I think it's as important as a
0: gallon of gas.
2: I agree. It's important. There's another measure, Amos, that you announced yesterday. You called on Congress to do something, to make companies pay fees on wells from their leases that they haven't used in years, and on acres of public lands that they are hoarding without producing. That's from the statement from the White House released yesterday. The administration keeps talking about these 9,000 leases. Amos, I don't think if you wrote this, you would have written that, because if I asked you the following question, I want a direct answer to a direct question. Of those 9,000 leases, how many of those sit on productive land? So
1: I, I will answer you a direct answer, but let me just say on, on slice of pizza price. I, I agree, the prices are going up everywhere. Part of that is part of that is as a result of these skyrocketing energy prices. Where we're we're not a farm to table uh, economy; we're a farm to truck to table. So everything that we consume has to go on uh, has a result or has resulted in a gallon of gasoline or a gallon of diesel uh, trucks coming uh, crisscrossing the country for. Do- for delivering whether it's uh ingredients for pizza or if it's for other commodities. So there's a direct result, and that's why it's not just uh the gallon gasoline is not a political issue. This is a real economic issue uh that we need to that we need to address and that is a result of a foreign war uh that we have to uh, be cognizant of. Uh, as far as the leases, look, we these are these are on public lands, and, and your point is right. If some of these leases are on uh, non-productive uh, acreage, then the companies that are holding these leases for several years sometimes uh, and are not doing any seismic, not doing the kind of work that needs to be done on those on that acreage because they're, they think it's non-productive, then you have two choices. Either you can return the lease or give it up, or you can uh, simply pay the higher fees because you want to hold on to that lease for a little longer uh, so that you can develop it later. Uh, and I think that so that is, uh, I, I would have written that. Uh, but Amos, fact, you
2: know why they might want to sit on it and develop it later? It could be on third-rate land that requires a higher crude price. You know how this works. The way this is being framed by the administration is that these land leases are being hoarded, that we're sitting on productive land, and it's not being produced because these companies are greedy. I mean, I'll read the line out from the president. His words, companies have an obligation that goes beyond just the shareholders to their customers, their communities and their country. No American company should take advantage of a pandemic or Putin to enrich themselves at the expense of American families. What evidence wait, 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 is there that they're hoarding those leases? Wait, I'll finish. Then you can go and I'll give you all the time you need. What evidence is there that they're hoarding those leases because they're being greedy to profit from what's happening in Ukraine?
1: So, so let's disaggregate. There, there are a number of issues here and and the president actually recognized uh the companies the oil companies that are responding to this price environment that are responding to this world supply shortage that we're in and have announced extraordinary increases in capex uh, and in reinvestment in the united states in uh, bringing on additional production and he's recognized them and said that was a that is progress and he and he praised them for doing that but there are other companies and you know that Jonathan that are saying look i have the ability to increase production with prices at when prices were at 120 and 130 just just a week ago and said i'm not going to do it and he called out some of those who've said even at 200 or 300 dollars a barrel i'm not going to increase production because uh, a variety of reasons and some of them are saying my my the funds that back me or that own my that my are my shareholders or my uh, my holders of my debt, are saying, don't do that. Give us increased dividends during this time. There is no well that is not profitable at 120, at 130. And if you're making a decision at prolonged period of time of above $85, which we've now been in for, for a few months, that you can't make more investment to bring on production, then I think the president is 100% right uh, to call them out, especially when other companies are saying no this is the kind of exactly the kind of environment that we're that we are going to increase production and look we did two things one the president announced that we're going to release a million barrels a day in order to increase the certainty of liquidity in the in the energy markets and to make sure there's enough oil on the market to support the US economy as well as the global economy number two he has said that we're going to replenish the reserve at a time when we finish dispersing and releasing the oil and when prices come down So we're gonna sell the oil now at high prices, buy it back later. That gives incentive to the oil companies to say, look, I know that even though the US is going to release these reserves, I'm gonna have a buyer in the US government later on. So it continues that incentive to increase production. And I think that this is what we needed. We needed to put something into the system where we can bridge the oil companies have said, if you look at Exxon and Chevron Conoco Oxy have said they're going to increase production. We're going to increase 900,000 to a million barrels a day this year. And that means but it's only going to come on in the middle of the third quarter to the end of the year. So we have a gap between now and that period of time. So what the president did yesterday, this historic move is to say I'm going to, the US government's going to fill that gap between now and then yep. and put that same million barrels a day of production that we're hoping to get at the end, that we're going to get at the end of the year and put that out now so that we're not replacing the private sector, we're incentivizing it and letting the American consumer benefit from lower prices between now and then.
2: The likes of Goldman Sachs disagree. Jeff Curry says this, the US policy use of an SPR release, a potential deal with Iran, extreme price volatility, and the growing risk of a recession next year are all exacerbating the uncertainty faced by producers, reducing their incentive to invest more. And the reason I bring this stuff up is that I want to avoid this really kind of simplistic conversation that something untoward is happening in the oil patch when you know that what happens in the oil industry is incredibly complex. Now, you've said something else over the last few years as well, over the last 12 months. I'll bring up another thing. This was November 17th. President Biden urged the FTC Commission chair to investigate oil and gas companies' retail prices, blaming industry leaders as gas prices continue to soar. It's become this talking point that oil majors are hoarding these leases, even though you admit we don't know what's on that acreage. We don't know what's on that acreage. Then there's this other talking point that somehow these companies are price gouging. And in the president's words taking advantage of a pandemic or Putin to enrich themselves at the expense of American families. I'm just asking what evidence is there of that? You wanted to start uh-oh, this probe, what right. have you found? What evidence is there? What companies are price gouging right now? And if you can identify them and na- name them, what are you doing about it?
1: Well, first, I, I think as we said yesterday, I don't believe, first of all, to, to Mr. Curry's comments, uh, I've, I and my colleagues in the US government, we've been in close contact with the energy industry. And most companies have actually said that they believe what we did yesterday was exactly the right thing to do. uh, And that they feel that it has an incentive because uh, it is for six months before their production comes online. And because we're going to spend the next couple of years replenishing the reserve, that means that they are incentivized to continue to spend the capex that they've announced to increase production. So with respect to to Goldman Sachs and uh, I'd, I, I take a lot of issue with some of the other things that he said in that report. Well, I, have, I have no doubt uh, you do. I, but a, another question I, I, you'd
2: be asked as well, <laughs> Amos, is who would, make a, who would make a decision like this to boost capex on front month Brent futures? Who would do that? WTI futures, front month, who would do that? You know what the rest of the curve looks like. Why would they make a decision based on where the front month is?
1: Well, don't I, I got to tell you, they are making that decision. Uh, They have announced that they're going to, several of the majors, who are the largest holders uh, and drillers in in the Permian uh, and in other shale basins, have said that they are increasing CapEx. Uh, I think Exxon said 25%. Uh, They're going to increase production. Uh, Total U.S. production is going to grow by about 10% by that 900,000 to a million barrels. It's just that these things don't happen overnight. You know that the decision to spend money, uh, billions of dollars to bring up production doesn't mean production comes on the next day but I want to address the point that you said because I think the president was very clear there are two we're not taking a broad swipe of the whole industry. he said I wanted that he wanted to acknowledge the fact that part of the industry has done exactly what it needs to do and to seek high oil prices incentivizing them to uh, bring about more production other companies and we can't ignore this john yeah some companies have said and the quote that he used in his speech that even at $200 a barrel, I will not increase production because of uh, so-called fiscal discipline. That is not, I'm not making that up. There no, I know you're not. Are, Amos, and, to saying. be fair to
2: you, just let me jump in. To be fair to you, that was a comment on this network. I heard it. I talked about it. I repeated it. It's something I've said before. <clears throat> Another thing I've highlighted as well was a Wall Street Journal report that came out in the last few weeks the administration is trying to make a call to the Saudis in Riyadh trying to arrange a call with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and they won't take the call. Now, I spoke to a (laughs) member of OPEC, and you can respond to that in a moment. I spoke to a member of OPEC this week, and I thought it was utterly embarrassing for them that they had a meeting earlier this month that lasted 13 minutes, and one just yesterday that was one minute shorter. Now, I wonder if it's more embarrassing for us that they're laughing in our faces and doing this. Now, you speak to the Saudis, talk to me about it. A, is that false? Did the administration try to arrange a call with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the President of the United States? And B, why are their meetings lasting thirteen minutes if we're in a massive energy crisis?
1: So, one, uh, there was a call that was going to be arranged between the president uh, and King Salman, and that call did take place. Nobody, that, that those reports I'm seeing constantly reports of Saudi snubbing the U.S. or. Uh, I think there's an interest in in certain quarters uh, to to bring about this kind of narrative that is completely false. Uh, I was in Sa- I've been to Saudi Arabia on a number of occasions over the last several weeks uh, or in a couple of months. Uh, on a couple of occasions, I was told what the Saudis told me on the front pages of a news of a U.S. newspaper about three hours before the meeting started, uh, and and I showed the Saudis the headline so that we can. Uh, jointly uh, comment about the, the hyperbole of the press on this. So I, I would really relax. I don't think there is any, the relationship between the United States and Saudi is strategic. Uh, we have a lot of issues that we need to work on together. Uh, there are complexities in that relationship that we are working on. Uh, we have a lot of issues that uh, that are of common interest, fighting terrorism uh, that Saudi has had to suffer through over the last several weeks, specifically from the Houthis. Uh, we have a lot of strategic interests uh, elsewhere in the region and as well on energy. And and I'll tell you that we're having very good discussions there. The press and and reality on this one are are really far apart on OPEC. Look, I, I was asked before the OPEC meeting if we had a message to OPEC and my answer was, I have no message for OPEC. These are folks that know the industry, they know the market, they know the supply and demand. I, I must have a uh, difference of opinion. Uh, we believe that not just believe but i can see the physical evidence that the market is short about two million barrels a day if not more uh from russian supplies into the global market that is that is clear to me uh we, we can see that uh obviously some uh, perhaps in opec don't see the shortage of supply but i can understand that it's a complex issue for them uh with the opec versus opec plus uh i think that that's uh they're gonna have to take some time and Perhaps if you're not going to discuss the issues very seriously, um, perhaps 11 or 12 minutes is all you need. Uh, but at the end of the day, they've, they've done what they needed to do, and uh, they've increased production by announced that they're going to continue the increases of production. We don't think that's right. The yep. president is not asking other people to do the work that we should do. He took action yesterday by himself uh, on behalf of the U.S. government for the American public of releasing a million barrels a day. I believe, by the way, Jonathan, that we're gonna have additional capacity coming online from our allies. Uh, and we, the president coordinated this release as he has all other measures against uh, President Putin uh, with our allies when he was in meetings at the G7 and the NATO summit last week. He's discussed it with leaders even earlier this week. We've I've had conversation with my counterparts and uh, there's a meeting that uh, is going on right now uh, of the IEA, the International Energy Agency to look at um, additional releases from the international market. So we won't just have oil coming on the market in the United States, but rather have oil coming on, online into the market in Asia and as well as Europe over the next several months.
2: Amos, you're a professional. You've given us tons of time and that's valuable to me. You know that. Thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> it. Amos Hochstein there of the US administration on the situation right now. Here with the Secretary
0: of Labor, our John Farrow.
2: Joining us now on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio, U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. Secretary Walsh, what a jobs report. Just fantastic. Most people that have come on the program this morning with Tom and myself and Lisa on Bloomberg Surveillance and on The Open have all said, it looks great. What are you most enthused by looking at this?
3: Well, I think one of the things that, that that I like is we we saw an increase in labor participation rate. So one thing we spoke about this morning, you know, a good you know unemployment number low, a good strong report, good last three months report, actually a good last eleven month report, over four hundred fifty thousand jobs. And we think about moving forward into 2022. You know, 1.6 million people still need to return back to the workforce. Uh, how do we get them, those folks, back to work? How do we make sure that that labor participation number goes up? Uh, certainly, there's still jobs open in the United States. That's one of the things. I'm not taking away from the report. I'm very excited about the report, but but I think we, we're thinking about here how do we move forward. The second thing is we're also looking at, you know, what what can be done by Congress. We have the bipartisan Innovation Act, uh, other known as the CHIPS bill. That allows us opportunity for supply chain issues moving forward. Uh, We have some COVID relief money still uh, being talked about at at Upper Capitol Hill. They need to pass that because we need to, we're watching, I'm seeing what's going on in China and parts of Europe with another variant going up. We want to make sure that we're prepared for that here in the United States. Uh, And then obviously inflation, we're working to, the president is, is, is very laser focused on bringing the cost down. of challenges there you were just talking about global challenges there that we have in other markets you know we have to you know continue to work very closely on that you know the fed reserve they're going to they're going to take their action i can't really comment on that but we have to we have to make sure that in the short term we do everything we can to reduce those prices but also long term that it doesn't happen again a lot of what we're seeing with inflation is due to the pandemic obviously what we're seeing with with putin and, and what he's doing with ukraine uh, but, but we also have to think long term how do we prepare the country that we don't go through this again.
2: Secretary Walsh, I've only got a few more minutes with you because I know you've got to do a range of interviews. You're a busy man this morning so I'll whip through a couple of other issues. There is a labor contract covering about 22,000 west coast dock workers at sites including LA and Long Beach ports. That expires on July 1st. I know you're aware of that. I want you yep. to help me understand what's the difference between those unions, those individuals behind those groups that represent them using their leverage to secure better terms and exploiting the country's dependence on those ports. What's the difference?
3: I don't think they'll do that. I mean, I was out in uh, Seattle and Tacoma in Portland last week specifically to talk to the company uh, and companies about about the negotiation a little bit, about how they feel about it in the unions and, and express to both sides the importance of what we've gone through as a nation over the last 18 months, with supply chain and challenges, and still having ships out in the ocean—they they all understand the importance of that. And, and I think the, the I don't I don't see either side exploiting the situation we're living in for better wages. The contract will begin negotiation at some point in the next month or so. I believe that's when it, it'll start. Uh, they have to do some notification piece, but I'm going to monitor the situation very closely. Obviously, um, I want to make sure that that we that we don't stop our ports. I mean, that the last thing we need in this country right now, or in this world, quite honestly honestly, is shutting down other supply chain and creating other supply chain issues. Are you going to step in? If I need to, I will. I, I, I sit to both sides. I mean, I don't think I have to step in at this point. Sure. If I did, I'd be having a very different conversation with you. But I think, you know, I, I feel good where the conversation is with, us, with the sides right now. I think that they all understand the magnitude of this particular moment. This is unlike any other moment they've ever had when it comes to negotiations, uh, still in, coming out of a pandemic and you know, moving forward, all these issues around there. So I, I think they acknowledge very seriously the situation this country is in and, and quite honestly our supply chain is in. You've been to those ports, you travel a lot.
2: I believe it's 60 cities in 30 states during your first year. You know where I'm going with this. You've also been really criticized because you've spent 162 days in Boston out of your first 284 days in office. Secondly, Walsh, you know this comes up often when you and I talk, it keeps coming up. People keep talking to me about it. Yeah, Why is I that? Think What's a, in Boston? I did,
3: uh, I think it's a ridiculous argument and a ridiculous point that's being made. In the very beginning of me being Secretary of Labor, uh, we at the Department of Labor, where I'm standing in front of right now, nobody was in the office. We were shut down because of COVID-19 and I was doing my job. I was traveling around the country. Some of those numbers, some of those numbers that are reported, I go home every weekend to Boston. I'm going to continue to go home to Boston every weekend uh, because I have a mother that's there and I have a family that's there and I've made it very clear from the very beginning. So I think when, when, when that article was written and that reporter put those facts and she's incorporating the weekends into that. And if she took those out and actually did an accurate account of what happened, that would tell a very different story.
2: Secretary Walsh, I've got a mother in London. I've got to be in New York. That's what happens sometimes. People are basically asking why you haven't chosen to live in Washington, D.C.
3: I do live in in Washington. I live in Washington. You've got a permanent residence there
2: now. You've got a permanent residence there in D.C. now. Just yes or no? I'm living out of a hotel. Okay. Secretary Walsh, we've got to leave it there. Thank you for being with us, sir.
0: Our friend on Jobs Day, Jeffrey Rosenberg, joins us, portfolio manager, systemic multi-strategy fund at BlackRock. Jeff Rosenberg, we went curve inversion off of this, now negative one basis points. Let's go back to Carnegie Mellon and talk to me about the nuances and disaggregation of curve inversion. There's zero. There's a little bit inverted. Maybe there's more inversion. What is that nuance within this boom economy?
4: Well, Tom, this this report is just reaffirming what the markets were expecting, and that trend that you were talking about in terms of the bond market of, of yield curve inversion. You know, no surprises in this report, as Jonathan just mentioned. The, the headline report The headline number miss is really minor. It's the strength in the labor markets that's that's being seen here again, and that's the challenge for the Fed. For the markets, as we're seeing a little bit this morning, a little bit more curve flattening, it is really much more about As Mike McKee was kind of highlighting, you know, this is good news, but it's a little bit too much of good news. And this is an economy and a labor market that's overheating. The Fed has to accelerate lots of expectations. Talked about at the top of the show some historic bond market and really financial market uh, losses in the first quarter. This is the markets readjusting to a much faster pace of Fed normalization. And today's report only will reaffirm that view. And that's what we're seeing with that little bit of flattening continuing in the market that you're talking about.
1: Jeff, for you, is this good or bad news when it comes to investing?
4: To investing, you know, I I think it's just a, a, a reaffirmation of our expectations, not good news or bad news, but just this is what we expected. And what we expect is this is a very difficult environment for investing because of the challenges of the dual aspects we're about to go into. We're talking about for the May FOMC, you know, the shrinking of the balance sheet and you know, markets are pricing in a move towards a 50 basis point hiking cycle. This is a very, very dramatic turnabout. That's why you had such a, uh, a negative price performance across fixed income in the first quarter because we're waking up to the idea. This is a Fed that wants to get out in front of the curve. And that means a very accelerated pace of tightening. That's a challenging environment for investing as we just saw in the in the first quarter. When we get to the backside of it and to some higher rates of real interest rates eventually and higher levels of yield, this will be an attractive environment. But the transition, it's a very difficult environment for investors as we saw in the first quarter. Do
1: you think that it's basically a lock that we'll get to, uh, we'll have one percentage point increase in the Fed funds rate by June?
4: You know, I wouldn't say it's it's a lock. It's definitely, a, 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 a well, it's about 90% priced in terms of the market. You know, you can't say it's a lock because obviously some things can happen in the geopolitical side that we're all focused on. If that were to take a a more dramatic turn that you saw in terms of risk-off environment, confidence, shock, you know, the shocks can be important. And financial conditions tightening, which to date has been accelerated, but is still on the longer view, very accommodative markets. If you had financial markets kind of get really far ahead of where the Fed wanted to go, you could certainly slow that pace. So I wouldn't say it's a lock, but. Given what we know today and the fundamentals of the economy, what we see out of this labor market report, I think the odds are very high that we're going to have two fifties back to back in, in, in the May and June reports.
0: Jeff Rosenberg, I went logarithmic on you. I've got to do that when you're on. And the answer is the Bloomberg U.S. Total Return Aggregate Index is not a bear market, but negative 8% is negative 8%. Are we in a bear market or is that what awaits us in the bond market Q2?
4: You know, the, the good news on the fixed income market
0: Give in me terms some good of
4: kind of mark, the, the, the good news is that we very quickly reprice the expectations and, and, and term premium and inflation expectations. So the repricing is the painful part. That's the negative 8%. But fixed income, you recall, the, the key to returns is the level of income. And so why you had such negative returns was you were starting at very, very low levels fair, of starting fair, income. Fair. So as we fast forward and you're at higher levels of income, it really gives you a lot more cushion to subsequent increases in interest rates. And that pace of negative returns uh, is much harder to repeat.
0: So then what do you do on a strategic standpoint? I mean, if you're, syst- if you're systematic, did you shift from full faith to uh, credit or... Do you you go to loans? I mean, what do you do here within a strategy of down 6%, 7%? Yeah, you know, a a, a couple of
4: things here. First, in in terms of kind of the directional part of our strategies, you know, the the front end of, of shorter maturities have certainly looked much more attractive coming out of this environment. The repricing, that curve flattening that you talked about. Well, that's really about restoring the cushion to fixed income investing and where do you see that strongest across the fixed income landscape, it's really in those shorter maturities. So that's an aspect of our investing that that we think is an opportunity going forward where there's more cushion from further increases in interest rates. And then in in, in our investing, you know, our toolkit is both the kind of directional view that I just described, but also looking at things that take out direction and look in the cross-section of investing and there what you're seeing is is a lot more opportunities to invest in dispersion both we invest in both the equity side and the fixed income side and there you're really seeing more alpha opportunities so it's shifting your mix your weight in your portfolio of where you're getting your returns from a little bit less out of directionality because directionality as you highlighted in the beginning of the shows is impossible to forecast where we're going but the dispersion in the cross-section actually increased it increases the opportunity to alpha
2: investing jeff reisenberg of blackrock jeff great to get you to react to what looks like a really strong payrolls report
0: we digress at this moment and we do so with my book of the summer a couple summers ago 2034 a novel of the next world when Elliot ackerman wrote this with james trevitas they had no idea The overlay of their book of the South China Sea and how it would turn to Ukraine. The former Marine joins us this morning, Elliot Ackerman. You have legit military duty. You're working Afghanistan. uh, Your 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 work uh, with CIA at the end of the uh, the tour. You're the Atlantic article. Of you speaking to a modern marine was stunning about the reality on the ground in Kyiv and in Ukraine. What was the distinction of your conversation with the marine in your Atlantic essay?
5: Well, you know, as you might know, that there's been uh, you know a large number of foreign fighters, uh, Americans, Brits, uh, individuals from Balkan states who've uh, come to Ukraine to fight. Uh, And so I had a conversation with a former Marine who served in some of the similar infantry units I had served in, and he had been fighting in the trenches around uh, Kyiv for the first uh, about month of the war. And, you know, the the, the salient point he was making to me uh, was that the anti-tank weapons that we've deployed to Ukraine were making a huge difference in that fight and allowing two or three well-armed Ukrainians to uh, stop entire Russian armored columns. Um, so you know that was one of the most salient points he made, as well as really just the intensity of the fighting that he had witnessed, which he said exceeded anything that he had participated in uh, in Afghanistan.
0: Take us beyond the media reports of brave journalists in Ukraine, those covering it day by day. How do the Russians adapt to a difficult march?
5: Well, it's yet to be seen whether or not they're going to be able to adapt. Um, you know, listen, the Russian way of warfare is different than the American or Western way of warfare. And one of the most uh, critical ways that that difference manifests is you know, the Russians have a very difficult time adapting because they have extremely centralized decision making structures. So, you know, all the decisions are made by a group of colonels or generals. Uh, and those decisions are disseminated down to subordinates who aren't supposed to ask questions or show individual initiative. In Western militaries, we fight with something we call mission tactics, which means even the lowest, you know, 21-year-old corporal understands the mission and the intent behind the mission, because the expectation is always that the plan's not gonna work, uh, that the enemy has a say, and that, that everyone's gonna have to adapt. So our Western militaries are very adaptable. And the Ukrainians, since 2014, Uh, have undergone a series of reforms to make them more like a Western military. So we're really seeing the contest between a Western military style of fighting and a classic Soviet or Russian style of fighting in Ukraine. And the result has been a lack of uh, Russian adaptability.
1: There's been a lot of times where the West has perhaps miscast other nations that follow a different set of uh, rules in a way that tries to reflect their own. Are we overstating or understating the hit to morale that so many people talk about among Russian troops?
5: I think that we are underestimating it. And I think we've continually underestimated Not only the hit to morale for the Russians, but we've been uh, habitually overestimating Russian capability and underestimating Ukrainian capability, as though we, for some reason, seem unwilling to conceive of the idea that the Ukrainians could win this war and, in fact, are winning this war right now. You know, it's important to note there's historical precedent for this. During the Second World War, Russia, which defeated Germany in the Second World War, invaded Finland. You know, a small nation, but very nationalistic, and the Finns defeated the Soviets. Um, so there's precedent for this. The Ukrainians are winning. I think, I think having spent time there that we should back a winner. Usually that's a pretty good strategy and uh, continue to support the Ukrainians in this fight we're taking to Russia.
0: Elliot Ackerman, we've taken great pride in our interviews with the military in this war. You may be aware there's another division of the U.S. military called the Army. And we met with their General Kimmet, of course, with a substantial infantry experience in Germany and in the Persian Gulf. And General Kimmet was heated that the Russians were unprepared for the urban battles to come in the war. Is that what we've observed this month? And what do those new urban battles look like for the Russians? No, we're
5: seeing the Russians, I mean, make, you know, some gains in a few select Ukrainian uh, cities, uh, but they've had to completely destroy those cities uh, to, to win in places like Mariupol. But the much larger story is in, uh, places like uh, Kiev, you know, cities that are real centers of gravity politically, and the Russians haven't even got into Kiev. They've been stopped in the suburbs. You know, Kiev is a city before the war of four million people. You know, you, the Russians just simply do not have the what we call the troops to task, meaning the, the you know the troops they would need to accomplish the mission. Uh, to take a city like Kyiv, let alone to take the entire country. I mean, Ukraine is a, a nation of over 40 million people. The Russians have an invasion force of 200,000. And it's a nation that has been completely mobilized, unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. This is you know, the fourth war I've been around. Uh, how much people are mobilized from you know, 20-year-olds up to, you know, to kids who are helping do work, like knit camouflage nets, to, to grandmothers, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult for the Russians to uh, achieve anything more than potentially some limited territorial gains. And even at that, I don't know if the Ukrainians would allow President Zelensky to give any territory because, and rightly so, they perceive themselves to be winning. So their view is, why should we be ceding anything we're winning this for?
2: And that complicates the talks all over again. Elliot, a clinic, an education, always learn something. Elliot Ackerman there, the author and former U.S. Marine.